Hi guys, welcome. My name is, thank you. <laughs> Got nervous when I have my, my comfort table. My name is Ben, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm glad you're, you're here with us on Thursday night. But before we begin, can you pray with me? Father, I come before you asking you to be present with us during this time. That your spirit would move in your people. That we would move to know you and to know that's the highest calling and greatest goal we could have in our life. Father, sanctify this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're continuing through our series of the Gospel of John, and we're in John 10 this week. We are so quick to rightfully say that we are saved through Christ, that we're saved through his cross, that we're saved through grace alone, that we're saved through faith alone. We're so quick to emphasize the mechanism of our salvation. And that's why in the American church, we love our altar call moments. We love our spiritual mountaintop moments. We love our spiritual breakthrough moments because when we see those or we experience those, we get to experience or see the beauty and power of what it means to be saved through Christ. And I believe the reason we love, we're enamored with this idea of being saved through Christ is because the results are immediate. And we're a culture that loves immediate things. We love that we can immediately scroll on our phones to get to that next post or video. We love that we can click the next episode immediately. We love the idea of fast fad diets that promise immediate results. See, we're a culture that loves the immediate. And when we're saved through Christ, we get to see the immediate results of what our salvation brings. In a moment, in a flash, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness when we come to God through Christ. We're immediately placed in the heavenly places at the right hand of God when we come to God through Christ. So we get this great spiritual rush of like heavenly adrenaline, almost like you get hit by holy lightning when we come to God through Christ, and it's an immediate thing. And it should be celebrated, and it's rightfully to be celebrated that we're saved through Christ. But we often underemphasize another aspect of our salvation at the expense of this one. See, we're not only saved through Christ, but we are saved in Christ. See, these are two aspects of our salvation that we both must both hold in both hands that we're saved in Christ. See, through Christ happens in a moment, but in Christ is a lifelong process. See, abiding in Christ permanently for a lifetime is what we're called to do. It means that I, as a believer who is in Christ, I am completely united to him. That all I have is his What's even cooler is what all he has is now mine. That's what it means for us to be in Christ. See, we're not called to have this sputtering stop and go relationship with Jesus. No, we're called to have this long, quiet, obedient march towards our Savior. See, faith in Christ isn't meant to be the stop and go process, like when we first learned to drive a manual. My dad had a lot of patience with me when we were doing that. It was like I was stalling out at every corner. That's not what our faith in Jesus is meant to be like. 
No, it's meant to be the steady crawl forward to know our Savior. See, we shouldn't have to rededicate our lives to Jesus every few months or years. And how many times have we done that? How many more times are we going to do it again? No, we shouldn't have to rededicate our life because we're called to permanently abide in Jesus. It's that lifelong process of being in him. And I'm going to make a very big distinction right here. This is not a call to work harder or legalism, to think that for me to remain in Christ is I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to pile up enough good things for Jesus to be pleased enough with me to remain in him. But he's calling you to remain in the relationship that he purchased with his own blood. Not a single thing you can do. But he's calling you to remain in that relationship. It's not by your strength to abide, but by Jesus' strength to bring you in. And I believe the reason we underemphasize this aspect of our salvation, of the lifelong abiding in Jesus, it's not immediate. It's quite the opposite. Abiding in Christ is the longest thing you will ever do as a Christian. There's no immediate gratification, but the day in, day out, constant and consistent, gritty seeking of your Savior. This is the most difficult thing you will do in your life. And Satan in this world have a vested interest in you not participating in it. Satan doesn't want this church, doesn't want the church in general, to be filled with people who have been diligently seeking Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Where the enemy knows that unlike our physical strength that grows weaker as we age, our spiritual strength only grows stronger. He knows that. So Satan doesn't want a group of people who've been seeking their Savior, growing in their spiritual muscles through the decades. No, he wants people who every few months or years fall off the track and have to recommit their life to Christ and perpetually stay spiritual infants that aren't useful for the kingdom of God. He wants us not to do that, so he is gonna pull out every trick in the book to make you not remain in him, to not have you seek to know your savior. And he's gonna use your own laziness against you. He's gonna convince you that, man, you had a long day at work or a long week, man, you don't gotta go to church. You don't need to pick up that Bible. You, you deserve just to veg out. He's going to try and convince you that your life circumstances excuse you from seeking your Savior for a season. And he convince you, yeah, the kids are just so busy with sports. We can take a, we can take a break this month. There's just so much going on. And then you find yourself a few months or even years down the line, find, oh, man, I haven't been to church. I haven't picked up my Bible. That dust on it is thick. Maybe Satan's going to use that sin that Jesus is calling you away from, and he's going to make it look even more enticing than it ever was before. He's going to try and call you away, saying, that thing that you want is way more important than seeking your Savior. And he's going to use pride and try, and try and convince you, and you're better than all these people. And why do you got to go to a church when the person, I'm smarter than every single person in this room? 
I'm going to try and pull every trick in the book to convince you not to continually abide in Christ, to stop that lifelong process. He's going to try and do that. And maybe after a while, you are away from Christ. You feel the weight of your sin. You feel the hopelessness of life apart from Christ. And you come running back to your Savior. And Christ will always welcome you back in. But that's not what Christ desires of you in the first place. Christ desires you to remain in him. Christ doesn't want you to be like a rebellious teenager who's constantly leaving the father's house, but he wants you to remain in the father's house and learn what it means to be a son and a daughter. For only by that lifelong process of remaining in him, of abiding him, of knowing him, Will you be truly transformed into the image of his son? Will you have that indwelling sin finally killed? Will you finally win your friends, your family, your coworkers to Christ? Will you truly taste the goodness Christ has to offer only by this lifelong process? It's not going to happen immediately. It's going to happen over the years and decades of seeking your Savior. And today we're going to look at Jesus' call for us to abide and know him. And this is what he says in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for my sheep. See, in context, what Jesus is responding to is the religious leaders, who were saying that life and life eternal may be found apart from him. But he is responding in this. He gives this beautiful teaching where he describes himself as the gate through which you must enter and the good shepherd whose flock you must be in in order to have eternal life. And he says anyone else that claims to be another gate or another shepherd, in fact, does not have life for you and is, in fact, has death. They are not a shepherd, but a thief. So Jesus is calling his people, his sheep, to know their good shepherd, to remain in the flock, to enter in the gate. So what does it mean for us to know the good shepherd? So we can spend a long time on those two words, that Jesus is the good shepherd. We could go back in the Old Testament and look at examples of what the bad shepherds were who led people astray from God. We could talk about how Jesus, our good shepherd, does not abandon his sheep when times get difficult. That Jesus, our good shepherd, only has good for his sheep. That Jesus, our good shepherd, is no simple hired hand, but is the owner of the flock. So each and every one of his sheep are his portion, his prize, and his glory. As you in this room. But our good shepherd, what I want us to focus on right now, says this. He says, I know my own. So before we can get for uh, what it means for us to know our good shepherd, we got to understand what does it mean for Jesus, our good shepherd, to know us. It means that Jesus, our good shepherd, knows us completely. There is not a part of you that you could hope to hide from your good shepherd because he knows you. 
Jesus knows the parts of you that you proudly put on display for others to see. But more importantly, Jesus also knows the parts of you that you hide from others, that you excuse to yourself that aren't even there, or you try and say they're not that serious. Jesus knows your personality. He knows your sense of humor. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what makes you nervous. Jesus knows your daily habits, the good and bad ones you have. Jesus knows your weaknesses, the things that would drive you away from him. Jesus knows your sins, even the ones you have hidden and you have not confessed to him yet. Jesus knows your prideful heart. Jesus knows our heart's constant erring into self-sufficiency, saying that I'm good enough, I deserve it, I should get this. Jesus knows our anxieties, even the ones we are embarrassed to say we're anxious about and we have never tell anyone. Jesus knows your finances. That was a scary thought. How maybe tight they are and how desperate you are for God's provision. Or maybe he knows how unaligned with kingdom priorities they are. I'm not just talking about tithing, I'm talking about how you spend your entire paycheck. Jesus knows your parenting difficulties. Jesus knows how you were up late last night having the same conversation you've had many times before with the same kid, how you were this close to losing it, or how maybe you actually did. You lost your cool. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows your struggles in marriage. Jesus knows the present trials through which you are passing. Jesus knows the past trauma you're still dealing with, and he knows the future difficulties through which you are going to pass. Jesus knows every inch of his sheep and all their beauty and all their mess. And the job of his, the good shepherd is to know his sheep so he can take care of them. He knows his sheep so he can take care of them so they not only survive, but they can be fruitful for the kingdom of God. See, he provides every single thing we need as we're part of his flock. And I'm gonna talk about three types of graces he supplies for his sheep. See, the first thing he does is he supplies us an enable or a complete grace. This complete grace covers all sins that we have ever committed. He supplies that for his sheep because he knows if he did not supply that, we would not, we would not be fruitful for the kingdom. We would be laid low by the sins of our past covered in guilt and shame, but no, he supplies a complete grace, wiping that slate clean. He also supplies an enabling grace. Grace for the present temptations and trials you are passing through. He knows what you need to get through these, and he supplies it. He also supplies a sustaining grace. If you maybe look at the next six months, year, five years, and you're just, you're anxious about what you feel like life is going to throw at you, Jesus, your good shepherd, has already supplied you with sustaining grace for what you need to get through that. And not only what you need to get through that, what you need to get through that 
and come out the other side reflecting the image of the Son of God more. See, he does all this because he knows what we need. And he knows us completely not to bury us with guilt and shame, but he knows us completely so he can completely cover us with his grace and love. He's kind of like, like a master art renovator. I remember a few years back, I was on the History Channel, and there was this one of the shows, I forgot the names, where there was a renovator who would go around to different art pieces in Italy, and he would fix them up. And he went to this one fresco, and you couldn't even tell it was a painting. Just black, covered in gunk. But he knew everything that painting would need, the tools, the supplies, to restore it to its former glory. And he spent hours upon hours with that painting, painstakingly removing all the old tarnish from the ages. And when he was done, it was restored good as new. Jesus is like that master art renovator. He knows everything it requires for you to be restored. He knows every sin-tarnished spot on your soul. And he spends time with you and patiently removes that old gunk by your abiding in him. And the amazing part is that he doesn't just make you as good as you were when you were new. He makes you better because you're not being transformed into the image of yourself. You're being transformed into him. Jesus' deep knowledge of us should be a great comfort and encouragement because with complete knowledge comes complete grace. Yet this sweet, sweet comfort of his knowledge of us comes with a challenge for his sheep. After he says, I know my sheep, he says, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So we're called to know the good shepherd as well as he knows us. So what does that look like? See, we're called to know Jesus' voice. Just like a sheep would come running to his shepherd's voice, we're supposed to be able to recognize Jesus' voice. And you're called to do that through the pages of Scripture. I'm not talking about some mystical, magical thing. I'm talking about practically open your Bible and knowing the commands of your Savior. That's what a disciple does. A disciple is one who knows his master's teachings and does them. If you're missing either of those, you're not a disciple. Plain and simple. See, we're called to know his voice. We're also called to know his will for our life. And guess what? I know God's will for each and every one of you in this room. It's for you to follow him. So we have made this so mystical and magical that you got to make all these certain right decisions in our lives for us to be in God's will, when in reality, his will for each and every person walking on this planet is for him, them to follow him. And it's the same for you. For you to know his will, to know his love, his mercy, and grace at a personal street level. To know his heart, his heart for sinners, to come to repentance, his heart for his saints, his sheep, for them to continue that path of growing in their holiness, 
and there's no his heart for the lost, for them to come home. See, we are called to know Jesus not in a trite and easy way like you know your coworkers, like how you knew what they did over the weekend. You're called to know Jesus as a deep and intimate way. See, knowledge in the Bible, especially if you open to the pages of the Old Testament, is equated often with salvation. Knowledge of God equals salvation. Because if you come into true knowledge of God, of his love, his mercy, his grace, his holiness, his justice, and you truly know that, the only proper response of that true knowledge is to fall on your knees in all humility before the God you've come to know and allow his love, mercy, grace, and justice save you. So you're called to know him in a true way, in an intimate way. See, he gives us, this command was ratcheted up a knot when he says, you're called to know me as the son knows the father and the father knows the son. This is a Trinitarian statement, so we gotta do like a 60 second rundown on the Trinity, so wish me luck. But it's important for us to understand. See, in the Bible, it emphatically says we have one God. We worship one God. There is one God. But as we flip through the pages of Scripture, you might get a little bit confused because we get presented to three separate persons who all act as God, have the attributes of God, and claim to be God. We see this in God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. See, they all have the power, attributes, and are God. But we don't follow three gods. We're not tritheistic or monotheistic. So it doesn't mean we worship three gods because the God we know is one in essence and three in persons. Say again, God is one in essence, three in persons. And if you're sitting there and your head is spinning, you're in the right spot. Because it's not something that can be simply understood in 60 seconds, much less a lifetime. But all you have to know is that these three persons that make up the Trinity, the God that we follow, live in perfect knowledge and perfect love of each other. They know each other so well, they are in fact one. And you're called to know Jesus in that same way. You're called to know Jesus so well that you become one with him, united with him. Do you know the good shepherd that way? And if you're sitting there and you're not thinking, man, I, I don't know Jesus, or at least I thought I did, but I don't know him that way. If you're not thinking that, you got to kind of remove yourself. Ask God to kind of remove any gunk that's over your eyes and ask him to let you see things clearly because you're being called to know the infinitely good, just, holy, and loving God. And if you think you can do that in the short blip of a life that we have, that's some pride. So we, we can never arrive at full knowledge of God because he's in the only one who is eternal and infinite. You must spend the rest of your life trying to know the God who redeemed you from sin and death. See, we must never grow content with our knowing of Jesus. Just like a doctor 
should never grow content with his knowledge of medicine and the human body. Like, just imagine yourself, you're walking into the doctor's office, you see your doctor, and he says, yeah, I don't even, I don't even study anymore. I don't read any books. I just, I just know everything there is to about medicine and the human body. If I heard that, I would request a new doctor. Because you want a doctor who is so hungry to know more about the field in which he practices. He's always studying to know more about the most recent developments and things he can know to help his patients. And you're called to do the same. You're never called to feel like you've arrived at knowing Jesus. For if you feel like you've arrived at knowing all of who Jesus is, you're settling for less than 100% of your Savior. But you're supposed to spend the rest of your days ferociously seeking to know him better. One of my favorite authors, David Paul Tripp, 100% recommend any of his books that he has. And if you want to kind of get the wind knocked out of you but filled up back with gospel grace, go read one of his books on marriage, family, theology, ministry. It will do that for you. And he has one term that I really like. He calls it gospel discontentment or to never be content with the progress of the gospel in your life. Or in the way we're talking about it tonight, to never be content with your knowing of Jesus. And I know that kind of sounds like a negative term, to be discontent with the gospel's progress in your life. Because we feel like in a Christian, our gets like, oh, I thought I was supposed to be content. But it's a good thing here. You're supposed to never be content with how well you know Jesus' love, power, grace, and mercy. And what does this look like, to be discontent with your knowing of Jesus? Let's take his love. Say you want to know Jesus' love better. Well, what would you do? You'd pour through the pages of Scripture, diligently reading to know his love better. You would fervently pray to ask God to show you his love, to experience his love. Your mind on your drive home wouldn't be filled with man, I got to cook dinner, or what am I going to watch when I get home? would be filled with thoughts of divine love. And you would find that God's love for you is much deeper than you ever could imagine. And in your journey to learn God's love for you, you are going to be so transformed by that, you're going to be able to demonstrate God's love for others, for your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors. And you can do the same with anything. You can do the same with grace. You can pour over the pages of Scripture to know God's grace. You could pray fervently to experience God's grace. You could fill your minds with thoughts of the power of the grace of the gospel. And you will find that God's grace is much wider and more powerful than you ever imagined. And you're going to be able to show the same gospel grace that you were shown in Christ to others. You can do this with anything. And that's what you're called to do. To never be content with your knowing of Jesus. Spend a lifetime flipping through the pages of your Bible just like when you got it for the first time. So you're called to grow continually. And not constantly learning the same thing over and over again. This is the very thing Paul is admonishing the church in, Cor in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. 
See, these people, and he gave them everything they needed to be successful as a church, to grow into people who were teachers of the gospel to their community and to each other. But when he came back, he discovered they were not growing in Christ. They had not remained in Christ. They were no longer teachers, but they were still infants. And he says the church needs mature men and women in order for us to be effective as a church. And the same is true here. This church, this valley, desperately needs a church of people, of men and women who are mature in Christ. This church needs men who are self-controlled, This church needs men who are men of prayer. This church needs men who are not men of bitterness, but men of love. This church needs men who are men of gospel conviction. This church needs men and women who love their wives as Christ loved the church. This church needs men who can teach the next generation what it means to be godly men. This church needs men who are more concerned with God's glory than the football game. This church needs women who are mature in Christ. This church needs women who do not gossip, but rather build one another up in Christ. This church needs women who welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Not resorting to comfortable cliques, This church needs women who can teach the next generation of women what it means to be godly. This church needs to show the next generation that the most important approval does not come from men or media, but from their father who is in heaven. This church needs women who can show show their daughters Show their little ones that their bodies are not just a piece of meat to be flaunted, but a very precious gift which they can honor God with. But for our church to do this, we must not be in this on-again, off-again relationship with Jesus. This things that our church desperately needs, this valley desperately needs for our church to be the city on the hill, the light on the stand, is only accomplished by each and every one of you guys' abiding in Christ, of knowing him better and better through the day-in, day-out reading of your scriptures the day in, day out of getting on your knees to pray to your creator. See, what this process of abiding and knowing Christ, just as the Father knows him, is a difficult, gritty process. It looks like each and every day setting your face to seek your Savior. Not dependent on how you're feeling, not depending on your circumstance, not depending on your past experience, but setting your face to seek your Savior. This is exactly what Jesus did in Luke 9.51. 
He says, when the days drew near to be, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He decided in that moment there would not be a single thing that would stop him from walking to Jerusalem to take up that cross for you and for me. That he would not swerve to the right or to the left, but he would accomplish what the Father put him on this earth to do. And you were called to do the same. To not swerve to the right or left, but to set your face just like Jesus did as he walked up to Jerusalem to seek your Savior, to know him. But the heart of being saved in Christ, of knowing him, is that we do not need to rely on our own strength to do it, for if that was true, we would fall flat on our face every time. We do not need to worry about our grip on Christ because his grip will hold sure unto eternity. I'm gonna ask the question one more time. Do you know the good shepherd? And will you hear this call to seek to know him for the rest of your life? for your own soul, for the souls of your children, for the souls of the people in this valley, will you seek to know him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we have such a good shepherd as Jesus. That God, we would never shy away from running to him, to know him, for it is the greatest thing that we could do with our short lives. In Jesus' name, amen.